On the ruins of piety and religion, we want to erect the creative hardness of our proud hearts. We are not the admirers of the ideal man of social rights, but the proclaimers of the actual individual, enemy of social abstractions. We fight for the liberation of the individual, for the conquest of life, for the triumph of our idea, for the realization of our dreams. And if our ideas are dangerous, it is because we are those who love to live dangerously. And if our dreams are mad, it is because we are mad. But our madness is supreme wisdom. But our ideas are the heart of life. But our thoughts are the beacons of humanity. And what the war has not done, revolution must do. Welcome to Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry. Before I introduce today's guest, just want to throw out, I've got a Patreon account at patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Consider throwing me a buck a month to help uh, out support the show. So I've got returning guest uh, Jack Collis, a.k.a. at Techno Ecologic, joining the happy hour for, for the third time. Yep, happy to be back. Always brings the best readings to the table. Thanks, man. <laughs> for sure. And on that note, I think today we're going to be focusing on three pieces. We're going to be doing a little bit of a Fichtean synthesis. So we're looking at Max Stern and Karl Marx and Overlooked Contratemps by Paul Thomas from a collection of essays titled simply Max Sterner that was put together by friend of our friend of the show, Saul Newman. Uh, the second piece is The Theory of the Individual, Max Stirner's Savage Thought by the bass god himself, Alfredo Bonanno. And last but not least, and my personal favorite, the Right to be Greedy by an anonymous collective called For Ourselves, published uh, notably in 1974. Title's a bit of a misnomer, I think it... Uh... Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Don't let that one, don't let that kind of uh, cringe title throw you off, because that's what I was like, uh, this sound, this title is cringe, but I think it's, it might be my favorite bit of theory that I've ever read, to it, be honest. It's pretty explosive, yeah. I think it, um, I think it is part of this general tendency i've noticed in the last like 50 or so years which is like a convergence of anarchist and marxist thought in a really interesting way and i think it's at the spearhead of those it's just a really interesting awesome piece and so i think the excerpt from the book that saul newman put together is going to be our that'll be what our uh, our thesis thesis <laughs> and then bonanno's piece the antithesis. antithesis yeah and then our synthesis is going to be the right to be greedy yes sir so i think one thing to maybe notes to just start off the conversation is like this is not a pissing contest about like cheering for your favorite team of like Marx or Sterner. No, like, I think both of them would have disdained that idea. Yeah, yeah. Because it's like I mean to take the Sterner Sternerian notion of whatever property you can from Marx, <laughs> in a in a metaphorical sense, take whatever property is useful to you. Mm-hmm. And, and leave the rest or, you know, incorporate as you see fit. And then you can discard it 
Yeah, Whenever and you're done. Marx would have, you know, historicized Cerner's thought as like a product of its time and, you know, equally de- equally valuable in the development of theory as, you know, anything else someone put forth. Just a reflection of the geist of his time. Yeah, and I think that's maybe the main thrust of the argument put forth in the in the initial piece on on basically the German ideology and sort of the St. Max critique that Marx illustrates there is sort of recognize just I guess paying due or acknowledging how Stirner's thought helped Marx shape his own yeah through like this exactly. dialectic for sure yeah I mean like Stirner was definitely the paradigmatic Thomas argues he was the paradigmatic young Hegelian thinker kind of like a group of Hegelian students who flipped his thought in very interesting ways. And Stirner was kind of the most radical kind of negation of Hegel's like original idea. Yeah. And Marx is making his peace with the young Hegelians in like the German ideology. So that's, that's kind of where we're at in this, at this point in time. Stirner is sort of, uh, he's doing, he's doing heretical Hegelianism. Yeah, definitely. It is uh, Hegel appropriated and turned into, I don't know, like a, dagger <laughs> and i think you see that a lot too in the final piece the uh right to be greedy which is very much like in that same tradition of hegelian argumentation that sterner kind of lays out but for this egoist approach which is like sort of totally <laughs> heretical as opposed to, to even to sterner's own ideas i think heretical it's appropriation of sterner's like basic premises for the ends of Communism was not something Stirner himself was into, but I think as we'll discover is far less of a radical dichotomy or break than some people would paint it to be. Yeah. And I think the good thing that they do as well in The Right to Be Greedy is also, you know, they're picking up on strains of ideas from Marx as well that I think you'll, you can see even argumentation that's in the the German ideology mm-hmm. piece that we're looking at. Some of that shows back up, I think, in The Right to Be Greedy yeah. Although it's largely more of the Sternerian argumentation. Yeah. Or implementation. I think so. Yeah. I don't know. There's there's definitely a tug of war at play, I think. <laughs> yeah. I forget who it was, but someone who I've had on had described Sterner as sort of the F the first person shooter. The RTS that is <laughs> communist revolution. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I totally agree with that. Yeah. I think that's a hundred percent accurate. I think that Sterner's egoism is not something that can be so easily contrasted with Marx's continuity of thought. I think it is something that Marx uh, confronted and folded into his thought yeah. in a way that really can't be divorced from his. Although, interestingly enough, the German ideology was not published until 1932. So, like, it kind of was ignored, that influence of Stirner on Marx, yeah. up until 1932 when it was published in Moscow. You know, there's this whole radical critique and a lot of like phrases that we come to associate with communist theory come out of the German ideology and were just totally forgotten about for almost a century. I think you wanted to go through sort of a, a bit of the historical, setting the context. Setting the stage, yeah. Yeah, setting the stage in terms of Hegel, the young Hegelians, Marx, and Stirner. And yeah, where they're coming from. Just going chronologically from like 
1936 to 1942. 1836. 1836. Yeah, sorry. 1836 to 1842. Marx is living in Berlin, attending the University of Berlin, and then later publishing a newspaper. And he joins up with a group called the Young Hegelians because he's kind of taken with Hegel's thought. And the Young Hegelians include, like at that time, the Bauer brothers, Edgar and Bruno, as well as a guy called Ludwig Feuerbach, who we're going to see is like a major kind of like foil to Marx and Stirner and kind of like, unfortunately, a historical footnote at this point, whose like most notable achievement was just getting annihilated by the both of them. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, so the young Hegelians are kind of like responding positively to Hegel's philosophy as far as it regards like the development of historical consciousness, but they're rejecting his and kind of like progress, generally speaking, maybe Stirner less so than Marx. But they reject his conclusion that self-consciousness has been fully realized in the German state of the 19th century. Bonanno kind of like explains that Hegel has kind of reached a telos, I guess you would say, that is kind of fundamentally reactionary, which is that the German state and German society as it existed in Hegel's time just after the French Revolution, but at the very start of the 18th century before, you know, so much of history really kicks into full gear as an accelerationist might frame it. Hegel is saying like, yep, this is it. We've reached it. This is the end of history. And Marx and Stirner are like, no. Yeah. And Bonanno argues, I think pretty explosively that Hegel's kind of valorization of the German state and its manifestation in this like heavily bureaucratized, very conservative body is foundationally like the heart of reactionary thought, and that it is kind of just justifying the existence of a state that will, a hundred years in the future, become Nazi Germany. So Bonanno is explosively kind of like arguing that you can't really separate Hegel and his ap- apologia for the German state from its consequences. And really just drawing on that culmination of universal spirit as sort of the Prussian state like is the fullest expression of of that that idea. Yeah. And I mean that's not to say that the Prussian state wasn't exceptionally well organized and like probably the uh height of modern social science and whatnot at the time, but it was also a very historical formation and was not near the kind of like perfect realization of rationality and freedom right. that Hegel might have thought it was. Yeah, absolutely. I forget who, which piece quote quoted this, but it was something <laughs> Hegel was saying that, oh, I, I am philosophy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like, um, shit. As the culmination I, like, of judge the history dread, of philosophy. I am the law. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty badass. I, I won't lie. That's a, a cool line. <laughs> I mean, so the young Hegelians, they are really kind of taking issue with Hegel's conclusion that self-consciousness, reason, and freedom have been kind of fully brought into their own and realized in this state by kind of critiquing the central concept, which is that the state, the family, the existence of modernity is the most rational and free way to organize society. It's a very phallocratic kind of... <laughs> yeah, I could definitely see that. Yeah. It's definitely, it's heavily Oedipalized, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, it is, I would argue, probably the culmination of enlightenment thought, you know, it is kind of like a well-oiled machine that does all the things that, you know, people think a state should do at that point in time. But Marx and Stirner are really 
and the young Hegelians in general are starting to look at the constraints that that society lives under and uh, think about how things could be different. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the early young Hegelian thought was kind of like centered around Bruno Bauer and Ludwig Feuerbach. And they were both kind of criticizing Hegel's religious outlook, I guess you would say. Uh, they were both, you know, hardcore atheists. And they, Bauer argues that Christianity was like, he argues very heretically that it was like fusion of Jewish, Greek, and Roman theology. And then Feuerbach argues that humanity has attributed these divine aspects of creation, knowledge, reason to a god where they should be attributing it to themselves. And that is kind of like early position of Feuerbach. But he kind of, you know, Bonanno points out that he is criticizing the divine, but he's not really negating it. He's just kind of saying, okay, it's not God who's divine. It's us, humankind. Yeah. And in doing so, he's kind of creating an ideal that is overpowering, I guess you could say. It's almost like just re it's maybe obviously perhaps influenced by Kantian categories, you know, Kantian category, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And maybe that's an echo of what that is. And like, so just changing the sort of signifier. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. I mean, like, he's not disproving. He's not he's not really actively atheistic. He's subscribed instead to the religion of mankind. Yeah. A kind of secular humanism that Stirner is going to center as the main focus of his attack and Marx is going to define himself against. Yeah, but at the same time, he is kind of taking uh, Hegel's idealism and trying to root it in like a historical material development of religious thought and how it kind of, he, he and Bauer are kind of examining how exactly it came to be rather than placing it in an abstract category of like the realization of freedom or rationality or what have you. Marx in 1845, he writes his theses on Feuerbach, which are kind of a rough outline for what is going to be the German ideology, which is his attack on Feuerbach and Stirner. And he kind of like praises Feuerbach's materialism, but he argues that it kind of reifies or reinforces an abstract human essence or a human nature, I guess you could say, which is like abstracted from social and economic relations. And Marx is also pushing back on Bauer, arguing that like Bauer is kind of saying that the only way for humanity to free itself is to free itself from religion and the kind of psychic hold it has over us. And Marx is arguing, no, not really. You know, religion might be a constraint in consciousness, but it is an expression of the political and social reality we live in and is not the only constraint we are up against. I think that uh, Thomas summarizes the kind of like young Hegelian thought as being like kind of, he's, he's, say, he's saying that it basically argues that consciousness is the kind of only thing we have to overcome. And once we achieve a sufficiently revolutionary and progressive mindset, we'll be able to throw off the bonds that hold us back as a society or what have you. I think it's interesting that you can kind of see, like if you want to map this out in a very crude Hegelian or even like I said, Fichtean way or historical development like historical materialist reading of kind of like this so hegel says this bauer says this sterner says this marx sort of integrates all the of the sterner and pieces yeah yeah mm -hmm. 
And uh, there are, you know, pieces of Marx and Schoener that are certainly irreconcilable, but I think as the right to be greedy bears out. It's not fully, it's not like 100% yeah. opposed, there's not 100% opposition in every single thing. That like a say. lot of their disagreements seem to be kind of fundamentally uh, miscommunication almost. Stirner is attributing to Marx the history of socialism as it has existed up until the time he writes his book, which is a very humanistic tradition that is kind of very different from what Marx's socialism will eventually turn out to be. A lot of their differences are very serious, but a lot of them are also semantic, yeah. I guess I would say. Right. Yeah. From there, Engels comes to Berlin on his military service. He starts hanging out at a bar called Hippel's, uh, where he meets Arnold Ruge, the Bauer brothers, and Stirner. And in 42, Marx kind of like breaks with the Hegelians and meets Engels for the first time. And then from there, he uh, is exiled from Prussia moves to Paris and starts writing the Economic and Philosophic Manuscripts, which I think is a very kind of like pivotal moment for him that kind of puts him on a track to confront Stirner. Engels argues later that the three basis, bases of Marx's thought are Hegel's German idealism, French socialism as it existed in the years after the revolution, and then British economics. And in his writing of the economic and philosophic manuscripts, he's like reading Adam Smith. And there's like a very important Adam Smith quote that I think sets the stage for his confrontation with Stirner, which is that it's not from the benevolence of the butcher, the brewer, or the baker that we expect our dinner, but from their regard to their own self-interest. So he's kind of introducing egoism and rational self-interest as the basis of human economic activity. And, you know, Marx will you know, nitpick at certain parts of that, like not all of that self-interest is necessarily going to be rational. Some of it could be, say, programmed by things like advertising or what have you. But he does kind of grasp that kernel that self-interest is at the heart of the everyday comings and goings of human economic and social life. In addition to reading British economists, Engels points out that Marx was very influenced by French socialism, which up to that point was very kind of humanistic. Marx later in life will call it utopian socialism. So it's kind of like... Is that specifically Proudhon or um, is he... Proudhon he's is more like, contemporaneous he, with... He is more contemporaneous with Marx and Marx will kind of like confront him in like the 1850s to 60s, I think. But Proudhon is definitely like influential but the figures that are kind of like the leading lights in socialism at that time are like Robert Owen, Charles Fourier, oh, uh, Fourier okay. and Henri de Saint-Simon. And they're like very, you know, humanistic. They have these grand visions of what socialism will be like, which is like, you know, everyone pitches in and lives in a commune and comes and goes. It's very rigidly planned and very kind of abstracted away from hard material truths, I guess you could say. And that's kind of like what Stirner is taking aim at. He's kind of criticizing that socialism as very abstracted from the desires of the rationally self-interested individual and kind of planning from above doesn't really vibe with his whole philosophy, which is based around individual autonomy and the pursuit of earthly pleasure, I guess you could say. I don't recall Stirner ever discussing reason outright or rationalism or anything like that, which is kind of funny now that I, looking back, kind of think about. I mean, I think there is definitely an undercurrent of 
critique of perhaps reason in itself as a higher ideal that humans should strive to embrace in all or, or like guide all of their decisions like i think that that would definitely Scherner would characterize that as a holy which is similar to like the holy man that Feuerbach creates yeah. in his essence of christianity just interesting in the context of hegel because hegel of course famously said the real is rational and the rational is real yeah yeah mm-hmm. and of course you mentioned the adam smith quote like that there's a certain rationalism driving that as absolutely well. yeah like yeah no i mean that is kind of adam smith's point of view is that the market is a convergence of rationally self-interested actors i think that sterner i, I don't think rationality plays into his view of self-interest it might not be in his rational self-interest to get drunk and ride horses down the streets of Berlin like Marx and Bruno Bauer do mm-hmm. in their youth if it's something that seems it appeals to his ego and to his self-interest it doesn't matter if it's rational to Stirner it's his desire his property after that Stirner in 1844 this is like after Bauer and Feuerbach have published their main things uh, he writes the unique in his property which is or unique in its property, which is a very, I don't know, it's it's a, it's a very slept on philosophy book, I think. I think it can be argued that it was a major influence on Nietzsche and preempted this existential worship of the self almost. Not worship of the self, that is... That would be, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> contradictory, to, <laughs> contradictory to what, yeah, what he's going for, but it is a testament to the cause of the individual. Maybe more specifically the... The I. Yeah, Not the necessarily I. the individual, yeah. The unique one, which is the individual freed from the constraints of morality or divinity or any of these kind of like higher causes that are kind of like the targets of the first half of his book. He's taking aim at everything. It's a war on everyone. Like it's a war on religion. It's a war on the socialist movement which he views as overly negative of negating the individual it is just like a at the same time though angles he writes a letter to marx where he praises the book and says that sterner's egoism serves as a natural point of departure for communism he says it is certainly true that we must first make a cause our own egoistic cause before we can do anything to further it we are communists out of egoism also and it is out of egoism that we wish to be human beings not mere individuals so he is kind of pointing out to marx that this is a very kind of like interesting argument that stern is putting forth and it serves as a natural basis for a socialism that is not so motivated by these abstract yeah by like the kind of utopian yeah the utopian strain that has come to define the socialist movement up until then you know it's really hard to separate the early socialist movement from revolutionary liberalism which was still very much a factor at the time right after the french revolution like the french revolution is definitely the birthplace of what you would probably call socialism but at the same time it's fundamentally a liberal revolution so sterner is critiquing these like liberal notions of self-sacrifice for a greater cause that greater cause being you know liberalism or rationality or the state or what have you he's saying i don't want any part of it it's not about me Unique in its property could probably be best thought of 
as perhaps a, an attack on ideology broadly and maybe that's the yeah. like power or the use of it or the what it's trying to do or where it's most successful in its approach because that's something that can be applied and picked up and like attached to a number of different thinkers you can sort of plug in because it's this very broad it's such a broad critique right it can kind of fit into a number of different thinkers you can definitely see where sterner is taking aim at all of his contemporaries i guess it's really hard to pick out a single target of who he's, who's attacking besides Feuerbach, who he, like, clearly, you know, names. Or if not names, subconscious, or, or like, ridicules, I guess. I don't know. He's he's definitely picking a lot of fights. Yeah. <laughs> In 1845, Marx and Engels write The German Ideology, which is their critique of Feuerbach and of Stirner. There's, you know, a short chapter devoted to Feuerbach, and when I say short, I mean like by Marx and Engels' like <laughs> terms, so it's like 100 pages, and then like a 500-page attack on Stirner. He clearly, in identifying Marx as like one of these utopian socialists, hits a nerve, I think. And Marx is just, you know, like, yeah, Thomas says that his accusation that Marx is a empty-headed humanitarian like Feuerbach definitely struck a chord and Marx is kind of asserting himself as no I'm I'm you know not just a vapid liberal humanist I am in this for myself and for you know I don't think Marx is coming at this from a strictly egoistic point of view but I also think that it's not the same kind of like altruistic humanism that brings a lot of people to socialism even today right you know? yeah yeah like it's 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 not just that he uh want socialism because it will uplift the poor and, you know, bring an end to poverty and capitalism and kind of create a ground on which a genuine individualism can be built. He is coming at it from, you know, a very complicated place that realizes it as like a historical possibility on the horizon and is kind of following that to its logical end, I guess you would say. The German ideology is kind of like overlooked, probably has something to do with the fact that it wasn't published for almost 100 years, but I think especially overlooked is how uh, Stirner kind of played a role in influencing Marx's... Right, yeah, his sort of intellectual trajectory or the projector, uh, trajectory of his project or socialist yeah. materialism that he's going for. Yeah, definitely. I think that, yeah, Marx was definitely stung by kind of like Stirner's words. And he takes Stirner's critique at face value and kind of expands it, kind of rolls with it. And his his main kind of point that he's arguing is that it is not these abstract divine causes that are the prime obstacle to liberation. He's arguing that it's very complex, unseen force, a historical force, which is kind of shaping human behavior behind our backs. And that force is capital. Through ideology. Yeah, a little bit of ideology and a little bit of just like pure material constraint. You know, like it's yeah. hard to pursue your ego's desire to be an actor when it's so clear that it's not a particularly easy profession to get ahead in or something like that. You know, you're sublimating your desire, your ultimate desire to be an artist or a performer or what have you, or just like a layabout like me, <laughs> to the material reality that under capitalism, you need to sell your labor to make a honest living and to avoid this kind of like pauperism and proletarianization that affects 
the vast majority of people. Stirner is definitely attacking Feuerbach in a very kind of like on the basis that his thought has created these new ideological categories that man sublimates himself to. But Marx, on the other hand, basically his critique, which he writes in the uh, thesis on Feuerbach, is that human essence isn't really an abstraction. It's kind of the result of social relations. It's not just abstract divine essence. It's the product of an individual's environment. He is kind of like critiquing Feuerbach on the grounds that human nature is not a fixed category, which only needs to be like dug up from underneath the, I don't know, soil of religion that covers it and is a very kind of like historically determined factor. Yeah. And I wonder how much of that is tied to sort of the Lutheranism that's present in Prussia at the time, right? Because that's a very, the flaw within, like there's a collective guilt in sin or original sin, but it's your mediated, like you have to negotiate that solution on your own through, right. Through faith, through communion with God, rather achieving. Yeah. Like on your own, on your one-to-one personal relationship with the divine and through via faith. Yeah. And Lutheranism is really kind of like an interesting anchor around which Stirner, Hegel and Marx all like attach themselves. They kind of view it as like this, natural blossoming of freedom and rationality in that time period from the, you know, very irrational and corrupt practices of the Catholic Church at that time. Marx sees in it a proto-communist revolution in which the people of Germany or of Luther's time rose up against the oppressive indulgences and whatnot of the Catholic Church. Stirner views it as an awakening of man into like from this base crude materialism of the ancient period to a higher kind of like spiritual spiritualism, which will eventually give way to, you know, egoism and the full realization of the individual as a like casting off of these like crude constraints. Both of them are kind of like coming at it from that way. They both view it as like part of a historical progression. From there, you kind of can vaguely make out the outlines of the differences between Stirner and Marx, which is that like Stirner is kind of ascribing to, you know, the view that like consciousness is fundamentally the obstacle of the full realization of the individual and Marx's view that, you know, the individual is a category that is socially determined and that it's constrained not by ideological constraints so much as material constraints. Although ideology definitely does play a factor, Marx is arguing that like against Stirner that the individualism that exists within Stirner and Marx's time of, you know, mid-18th century German pales in comparison to what could be, essentially. He's looking to the future of what individualism might look like in a society not burdened by these economic realities. By a different mode of production, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I guess that's, you know, where these this division between Marx and Stirner starts to, like, become more concrete, is that Marx is arguing that it's only through collective action and collective overcoming of the constraints of capitalism that we can fully blossom as individuals. And Stirner is kind of accepting the game for what it is and saying, you know, I'm not going to waste my time uh, knocking on doors for Medicare for all or whatever to give my time over to some revolutionary cause. I'm going to just live it up in the time that I'm on earth. I don't know. Does that make sense? 
I don't know, because that would almost fall. Eh, I don't know. I think it's more it's more subtle than that, because I don't know that he's necessary. I think that would almost be the sort of bad individualism, that liberalism. Like that's that's very reductive of the type of egoism that Stirner's really trying to embrace. I think. I think that's fair. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that Marx is looking at it in that light. True. He is kind of framing it as, you know, narrow bourgeois right. individualism yeah. as opposed to the potentially full realization of individualism that might come in a more liberated time. Yeah, that is kind of like where I think Marx misunderstands Stirner. And I think Stirner similarly misunderstands, if not Marx, because Marx is writing after Stirner and Stirner, I don't think, ever sees the German ideology that Stirner's view of socialism is very narrow and not true to what Marx's view of socialism and what we will eventually come to understand as socialism means. So yeah, Marx kind of like is breaking with the young Hegelians here in Thomas's estimation in the German ideology. He's basically, his view of young Hegelian thought is basically that they issue the injunction that people only have to change their consciousness to make everything in the world all right. And Marx is saying that there's far more at play here. Yeah. One particular example of where Marx narrows in as a zone of critique is with Stirner's presuppositions about the state. So Thomas writes that Stirner would insisted that individuals would discover for themselves that the state is in the last analysis and a collective illusion. As an authority for this assertion, he actually cites Marx in his essay on the Jewish question, which is a re- rejoinder to Bauer. So like Marx, Marx is saying that the idea that people only obey the state because they're deluded does not necessarily lead to the presupposition that the state is a delusion because law might exist in the mind of individuals and the state might exist in the mind of individuals, but it also exercises a very... Yeah, it has real material force in, in the form of violence against the individual. Yeah. And I mean, like, you know, there's kind of like that Game of Thrones quote, which is that like power resides where men believes it resides. Marx is basically like pushing back that just because that power is based on belief, it doesn't mean it isn't power. Right. Yeah. Okay. Which is, yeah, which is hard to disagree with, I think. Yeah, definitely. But at the same time, I think there is this sort of consciousness, there is this element of consciousness that, or rather there's a sort of, there is an emperor without, with no clothes, clothes yeah, sure. element of it too, that even even those that are in power are... <laughs> Like in this discussion of the master-slave dialectic to draw from Hegel, the people in power are in many ways like not they lack freedom or they they lack this sort of agency yeah. that you might sort of assume, I think. Yeah, sure. I mean, like they are fundamentally cogs in a machine, I guess Marx would probably argue. They are fulfilling a role that has been assigned to them basically by the by division history of labor and, and history yeah, yeah history. the progression of history yeah so like they are not you know they might have power but they have power within the very limited constraints of capitalist society so they might jeff bezos could suddenly sell all his shares in amazon and fuck off and live the best life imaginable but he's still going to play the role that's not a likely scenario yeah why why hasn't he why hasn't uh, he done that that's actually maybe something interesting to look at in the context of the right to be greedy and the argumentation that it's making is because like okay if and that's such a great point towards the phony or 
misplaced, or I forget what the terminology that, that's used to describe this sort of capitalist selfishness or self-interest. What's the point? If you're Jeff Bezos, why do, why work? Why would you work? Why why yeah. what are you yeah, doing? Yeah, yeah, what exactly. the fuck are you doing? Yeah. Yeah. I mean <laughs> But like, he's sort of a but see what I'm saying? Like it ma- it maps onto that sort of they're slavish to capital. Yeah, there's like a or the really, idea of what you know what I mean? Like yeah. what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> like Yeah, there's it makes no sense kind of from like, a from an idea of from a sterner notion of greed or self-interest sure. or egoism right because yeah why are you working it makes from that sense there's no doesn't make any sense yeah like that's kind of like one of the areas i think where marx is misunderstanding sterner yeah which is that sterner is not concerned with he's not really concerned with exchange value he's not running his milk shop in berlin to get rich he's doing it because it brings him you know joy it is the use value of things that sterner is more concerned with than the exchange value he's not playing the game of capitalism to get rich in the pursuit of money, there can never really be enough. Yeah. There's no logical endpoint. There's yeah. almost like a, to sort of paraphrase Todd McGowan's critique, it's like, the cl- the more you accumulate, the closer you get to desire. It's almost like Zeno's paradox. It becomes hard, like, the closer you get to r- achieving whatever, reaching desire, Yeah, those increments get, it gets harder and harder. So sure. it, you're even more, you're most... Someone like Bezos that's is more conscious of their lack than even the the pauper in, yeah. in a sense. You have to wonder though, like yeah, I mean like what is he doing this for? Yeah, like, Yeah, exactly. It's only it's but not for his own sake. You know, like he claims <laughs> that it's for like his pet project is, you know, Blue Horizon or whatever he wants to build a spaceship or whatever so that we can get off Earth in the event that, you know, climate change destroys it because of capitalism. But, you know, capitalism is what's causing climate change. So couldn't you just like stop yeah, and right? yeah, know, I mean- <laughs> not do this? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like you definitely have to wonder like if he thinks about this stuff or if he's just I'm going to keep going. I'm going to see how far this goes but at that point he's not doing it for himself he's doing it for i don't know he's some abstract goal of whatever like a a goal goal for control or a goal for you know to be the savior of humanity i don't know it doesn't seem like there's no it's like it's not a material it's like a spooked thing yeah exactly it's it's a he has a fixed idea of i don't know damn i think that's that's really good i hadn't really thought about it in that context but if you really examine the self-interest of it yeah it does it's contradictory <laughs> like this is where sterner's conception of, like so sterner's yeah, this is where he shines right really differentiates itself from the liberal economic sense of self-interest yeah. which is that part of adam Stur- or adam smith's conception of rational self-interest although i think this is like more of a mischaracterization of his thought and how it's been ideologically shaped is that in pursuing an individual's self-interest they're also furthering the collective good and that is a rational pro- process first off sterner doesn't like care about the collective good it's not his cause but the second part is that it's not even necessarily rational self-interest it's just at a certain point it's just narrow greed for more money or more control or power. Yeah. Greed for greed's sake rather than for your own sake. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's so great. Yeah. <laughs> and it's a it's it's also in a very, you know, good sense of way of it, it demonstrates Marx's point, which is that Bezos's role as a capitalist 
hasn't necessarily been it's something that he fell into because of the division of labor like he probably had rich parents which helped him get started with his company but like at a certain point he is more or less just acting as a conduit for capital to do what capital wants right. rather than yeah, for exactly. Jeff Bezos to do what Jeff Bezos wants yeah it's almost like he's more controlled by capital than even sure yeah definitely in a sense i mean though that's maybe where that's where the dialectic or the argument or disagreement between marx and sterner yeah manifests itself very distinctly and clearly because mm-hmm. like in sterner's argument bezos has very at any time he but he won't he yeah but he's he's sort of a slave like there's he's a slave to whatever in that sense yeah, and there's so a great line in uh, the reversal of that is like the pauper is has a sort of freedom that Jeff Bezos doesn't, but Bezos has a material freedom right. that yeah, so the like, pauper doesn't have. Yeah, so Sterner, his ideal revolutionary subject in the unique in its property is the criminal or the pauper who is kind of like excluded from the circuit of value creation and they're at the same time blessed with the freedom to do anything and cursed with the lack of resources to do anything (laughs) with their freedom. That dialectic, yes. Uh, So they have, and in that sense, they are Marx's revolutionary subject because the proletarian ultimately becomes a pauper and at a certain point, they have nothing to lose but their chains. Like, I think you could argue in a certain sense that Jeff Bezos is equally constrained by those chains in that, like, if he chooses to get off the ride, stop being the CEO of Amazon, Someone to say that, like, his that board in. won't try and contest his share of their revenue or what have you as because his whole pot of money is the same pot of money that Amazon is funded by. So, like, at what point does someone jump in and say, you know, this isn't your company anymore? I guess on the Marxist side of things, Marx is arguing that Stirner doesn't really grasp how the proletarian is inherently pauperized by the conditions of capitalism. And the pauper doesn't really have the freedom to do what he wants because he is constrained by his material reality, which is poverty. Yeah. yeah, by scarcity. But the what's interesting in the context of the revolutionary subject is that it is the pauper that has that is excluded by their relations to production. Definitely, they have the most revolutionary potential. Which is interesting because Marx kind of like disputes that claim right. in his analysis of like the lump and proletariat, which I think is one of the kind of territories where he just like got it totally wrong, which is that it's the person who is excluded from the world of work that is truly the most, has the most potential for you know, revolutionary activity because they're refusing. Like Stirner claims that pauperism is the valuelessness of me. It's my exclusion from the game of capitalism. It's my refusal to sell my labor for pennies on the dollar and make myself a slave. It's a really interesting dialectic there. Yeah. It's interesting in the context of Deleuze too, because what would, I mean, Deleuze with not only obviously the nomad is a figure within Deleuze Guattarian thought that is like their revolutionary subjectivity, sure, yeah, but also in the sense of disability or even like the metaphor of the schizo yeah. of the schizophrenic as the as a revolutionary or having their most revolutionary potential, yeah, to like there's a I think there's a a thread there's a thread of commonality or something that's running through sure that idea of the pauper or the excluded that could be extended to disability 
Yeah. And they're because of the relations to labor and productivity. Yeah, definitely. I think something interesting to flesh out. Um, I definitely know like people that have, especially, especially Guattari, like using Guattari in this context of disability. Yeah. uh, And disability being this massively revolutionary thing. Yeah. But I think this element too is where like Sterner almost is picking up on that too. They also anticipating kind of conceptualize the schizophrenic as produced by the conditions of capitalism, by its flows of desire and its production of mental illness and schizophrenic tendency alongside its production of everything else. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I think that I think that's what's really revolutionary in Stirner's perspective is that he views the pauper as a person who is choosing not to engage with the creation of value. And I think that that's where... Yes, we have to starve the beast, so to speak. It's almost like... Pretty much, It's almost where antinatalism is like starve the beast. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, like capitalism does, you know, need bodies to fuel the fire. But I mean, there's also an economic constraint to that as well, which is that as, you know, this is something that Adam Smith points out in like the first chapter of The Wealth of Nations, which so many people totally ignore, which is that as conditions become more dire for the proletarian, their birth rate declines precipitously so it's in effect producing its own lack of bodies on which to fuel the fire yeah capitalism is and, and this is something that the are always talking yeah. about which is that capitalism produces its own limits yeah and it's not only at the bottom it's really like if you look at you know industrialized birth rates versus or like level of industrialization yeah i in mean context like, of birth rates like in in modernity yeah so as agrarian populations develop they tend to whether it's by a result of conscious birth control or because they don't have enough money to raise larger families they're you know in the least developed parts of the world in sub-saharan africa and whatnot you know you have families of like eight seven or eight even like nine or ten and in countries like Japan, you have less than two. So like capitalism is literally no longer able to reproduce sexually almost. Right. Yeah. They um, have to, immigration is necessary to replace the like native population and yeah. shit like that. And that kind of like constraint is produced by the like. This is funny in the context of like Brexit and all the like hysteria over immigration from Muslim countries. I guess I could see that. Yeah. I mean, um, if you look at Europe's birth rates, like those societies are very much, I mean, that's why Italy was so threatened or had such a bad time with COVID is because the population skewed very much older than say, like even the US or other. And demographic aging is another like effect of. And I think that's what more widespread in, in Europe, even than it is in in the United States or more, yeah, more pronounced because of, we do have immigration, more immigration from like Mexico and South America, Central America, et cetera. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I mean, like, yeah, you do you do see these like below replacement rate birth rates in like Russia after the Soviet Union collapses, like countries that are facing economic deprivation start to fail to reproduce the very or even but also own. like I think even successful success in the game of development leads to this. problem. Yes. Yeah. So but like, even at the top, it's like more yeah. educated people have less children, Yeah. less children. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sterner is basically arguing that I will not subject myself to the sale of my labor. I will not subject myself to the will of an employer. And in that regard, I think he is kind of getting what Marx is saying, which is that, and I think in that regard, he's really preempting a lot of like modern revolutionary thought, which is centered around, you know, the autonomists, the communalization people, the, a lot of insurrectionary anarchists, the most revolutionary practice for them is the refusal of work, the refusal to sell your labor to feed the beast as it were, you know, 
at the same time that it produces your own precarity, it produces the conditions for you to explore different kinds of subjectivity that are not conditioned around the sale of your labor. Which is kind of an interesting, if you look at that in the context of Hegel or Lacan and contradiction, I don't know, that's kind of a... Yeah. So, I mean, like, where Stirner doesn't grasp that the pauper and the proletarian are one and the same is that work is the other side of poverty. It is the system of work that produces so many reserved bodies of surplus populations who are unemployed and can't, you know, find work because certain people are hoarding all the opportunity and the system of work, the sale of your labor is at the same time producing a surplus pool of reserve labor that is inherently pauperized. And I mean, I think this is where like right libertarian readings of Stirner fall short, which is that they kind of like through high level apologetics are accepting capitalism as like the be all end all of human freedom. And they seek to like maximize individual freedom within that narrow window. But freedom under capitalism means you have to have money and money means you have to work and work means that you're giving up your free time to sell your labor, to get the money, to do whatever you're supposed to be doing with that money, yeah. you know, enjoying, consuming. What's funny too is like the contradictions within capitalism and in the context of greed or self-interest or what have you, it's sort of like the bullshit excuses or ideology of capitalism is do this for your self-interest, but if everyone behaves this way, then capitalism can't function. And let me materialize that in the context of perhaps learn to code, right? Yeah. Become a coder. Yeah. Like if you learn to code, you are... As you learn, as more people yeah. pursue their rational self-interest of learning to code, then that becomes The less, price of that labor becomes yeah, less. Then that becomes valuable, which defeats... Less valuable. Yeah. <laughs> which defeats your whole... Purpose of learning remote. to code. Yeah. No, I mean, that is why like these companies are pushing coding as like a means of raising yourself up is because ultimately they want a broader pool of coders, which they can pay less yeah. and but I mean, force more precarious work conditions on. I mean, it's capital. Yeah, I right? mean, it's capital is needed. As, ver as production is moving into the virtual, capital must is trying to reduce those costs to bring profit rates up. Definitely. Because that's its own, like, it's its own positive feedback loop. Or, I don't know, maybe <laughs> positive feedback loop in the context of capital, maybe negative sure. feedback loop in the context of Human the life. egoist. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I mean, so this is like the other area where Marx has a major beef with Stirner, which is that Stirner concludes that labor has an inherently egoistic character, which is that like you can devote your labor to what makes you happy or whatever. For Stirner, it was opening a failing milk shop. But Marx is arguing that with like the advanced division of labor that comes with modern capitalism, people are really channeled into incredibly like narrow and spe specific. Yeah, it's like the instrumental, yeah, instrumentalization yeah. of of human labor. The average, say, someone in Bangladesh wants to be a fashion designer, they are far less likely to be able to pursue that dream than a rich Westerner with a lot of expendable labor they are instead channeled into factories where they are working on a very narrow aspect of the clothing production process so they are you know sewing the seams on t-shirts and yeah or like and that's it printing the image or and that is the only thing they do and marx is arguing that you know there's no real egoistic labor under capitalism because labor is so channeled by capital's needs 
and capital's needs include the endless division of labor into increasingly more specialized tasks so that it can do these things more efficiently. For Marx, labor can't really be personal in the way that Stirner is conceptualizing it. For a very few select group of artisans in like the developed world, you can probably engage in the design of a t-shirt from start to finish. Yeah. But at the same time, you're going to be forced to sell it at much higher prices to like a more selective market. You're not going to be able to... And eventually, you know, if you do that well, you might be forced to scale up, at which point you will become a manager rather than the producer of t-shirts from start to finish. You are instead managing the production process of, you know, hundreds of laborers sewing the seams, hundreds of laborers printing the images, hundreds of laborers gathering the cotton or what have you. The division of labor inherently channels people into these very narrow, very alienated expressions of labor. Which that critique, I definitely agree. I mean, I agree, obviously, with the the alienating force of the division of labor. And what's crazy, what's really crazy, what gives this massive... This is like over 150 years ago Yeah, that Marx is writing. Yeah. And at that time, 150 years ago, he's already anticipating well, I mean, like even, or seeing the, the alienation in the form of division of labor. But like now that is even more yeah. pronounced. I mean, even in Adam Smith's time, like he starts the Wealth of Nations off with a examination of the division of labor and starts off with like a very, you know, he went to a factory in the UK where they were producing pins yeah. And he was observing that, like, you know, it was one person's job to sharpen the edge of the pin. It was another person's job to put on the little ball. I don't know what a fucking pin is, like, yeah. anatomy of a pin is. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm probably not the most qualified person to talk about this. But, like, even then, there was a division of labor that was so intense and so alienated. Right. And now it's just, we've got this massive... Like, I mean, the app market or, like, the... Mm, what is it called? Like, gig gig economy is even more so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. Because it's purely service-based. It's There's not even, like, a product that you're producing. It's, yeah. serv- it's like, Well, I mean, the products are, like, being made elsewhere. At a certain point, the... Sorry, the uh, wealth of industrialized countries become so that those jobs are no longer feasible. You can't, you can't pay to have a union worker in Michigan make a car from start to finish. You have to move that elsewhere to keep the product cheap, to keep people buying it, to keep the whole engine going so that unionized worker now like say he was starting out in the 70s now he's probably driving for uber to make ends meet because his social security checks are like not sufficient to cover his living expenses the, the division of labor has now become a global process yeah and it's it's very regionalized like in the u.s it's the frank sabaka speech we don't make shit anymore we just put our hands in another person's pocket to look at this in the context of I think the gig economy really illustrates this because what is the value within the gig economy? It's is the network, which is the social, yeah, yeah, which sure. is the social, purely social is the network. And that's what allows these companies to thrive is the, yeah, it's like the private property of It's their, the value of the capital. Like, and not even their, and not even like their innovation because no, you could, it's, anyone, it's innovation, you absolutely. could totally do yeah. another app that would you know you could probably come up with a better rideshare app like in a sense 
No, you could probably Uber. come up with a rideshare app that pays the drivers far more fairly, but it's well, you not, could, yeah, I mean, you could do that too. But I'm but just it's saying, not like, scale to expand Uber into a company that also makes self-driving cars, that also rents yeah. scooters, and like does all that shit. Like, you know, if you're paying the workers the fair price of their labor, then there's no room to grow, and that's really what's important here. Yeah, yeah. but I think even in the like, let's say you're using the capitalist mantra of competition or what have you, sure, and so like there's nothing stopping another company from doing rideshare and doing it perhaps even better like in a sense of like the way that the app functions not necessarily in the yeah on the worker side not on the labor side well but- there's also that like problem that uh, social media networks have i think which is that the first one to the punch wins yeah basically yeah and then uh, it forecloses forecloses opportunity for innovation basically yeah because and it's the-, the walled garden of like intellectual property that and access to the network. I forget what this this actually is called, but there's a name for this process, which is basically like that the first to the finish excludes all other competition and they become the, you know, de facto. The idea that there is a possibility for competition is kind of illusory because what naturally happens in capitalism is that these companies become the most powerful monopoly and no one else exists in that market. Yeah, they can't and then they it. bend this, yeah. Well, they, yeah. and then they bend the state to their will as well. Yeah, exactly. Which is like an argument I've been embracing a lot more over the last maybe couple of weeks is that capitalism is, I mean, state capitalism is really a thing. Like, obviously it's not... Well, I I object to like the, just like framing of state capitalism. Sorry, go ahead and finish your thought. Well, state, (laughs) state capitalism in the sense of that methodology of the... The hegemon of the whatever vertical um, assertion or whatever. Yeah, or like, you know, Microsoft, right? Sure, yeah. They are at the top of the heap of whatever specific vertical of production yeah. for technology. Yeah. They then lobby the state and they pre- to prevent competition. Yeah, exactly. Effectively. Like, so, so in that sense, yeah, that's where the relationship between capitalism and state, it is not it's still there's not a full there is there can be conflicts but overall like the general yeah movement is towards cooperation between state and capital so my objection to the term state capitalism comes from the fact that like there has never been a non-state capitalism from the very first days of capitalism but now especially let me what about this though like because not only now does the state produce or like support industry the state literally through fiat money creates like <laughs> you know it's, what i mean i think it's always done that so i mean like the state you know supports these companies by doing like quantitative easing or what have yeah, you yeah. and like supports my point is that from the earliest days of capitalism when you have the dutch east india company and what have you like there's there's never been this idealized construction of capitalism where like tiny little businesses competed and whoever was the best one that never happened that is an ideological construction 100% from the earliest days of capitalism when it was a mercantile system it was very yeah. much like royal monopolies right. which would do all the business exactly. yeah. and those royal monopolies were funded by you know gold which was also a fiat currency of the time and yeah, the gold was true. plundered as a part of their like capitalist enterprise so like yeah. you know the idea that like state capitalism is a you know unique is a new phenomenon, phenomenon yeah is gotcha fundamentally misunderstanding okay. the relationship between the state and capitalism okay gotcha yeah and i guess like that's also like but i think maybe it's more i don't know it seems like it's an intensification perhaps of that historical relationship because now whenever at least there was a constraint previously when it comes to physical <laughs> ability to find gold sure 
like physical gold, but now it's like there. I saw There's some article yeah. the other day. They were saying like I think it's something like twenty three percent of the dollars that have that exist now were created no within the last were, no, but were created in the last year. Oh shit! <laughs> which is like one fifth of <laughs> yeah, that's one fifth of the currency. Wow, that's ever been created was create created in the last year. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess that's just like the process accelerating, you know. <laughs> virtualization yeah yeah but i but i also think yeah i guess that like false dichotomy between the state and capitalism is where marx would take some issue with sterner as well like sterner kind of views the state as this ultimate extraction abstraction which is the most fundamental oppressor of right human freedom and marx is very much identifying the state and capital as a singular entity which definitely oppressive but can't so easily be divided into either the state or capital you know gotcha yeah yeah marx's critic critic like his his famous line about like the communist individual that like he can become accomplished in any branch he wishes so that the individual can like hunt in the morning fish in the afternoon read cat rear cattle in the evening criticize after dinner do whatever he wants is very much addressing Stirner's conception of individualism, which is the individual can work at whatever their heart desires and express their egoistic cause through their work. Marx is, Marx is very much pushing back against that by saying, no, it's work that is the fi- fundamental obstacle to the full realization of the individual. And like this vision of fully realized individual doing as they please through all stages of the day is Marx's conception of what the individual could be yeah i guess to introduce the right to be greedy into it like the they kind of like introduce the conception of narrow egoism versus communist egoism so narrow egoism is like the rational self-interested individual of capitalism and they are kind of the idealized capitalist subject but they are kind of fundamentally also channeled by the like need to pursue money as the be all end all of the system like money gets you everything you want under the capitalist system like if you want to be a person who does i don't know a work from home job during the day but then like expresses their individualism by doing like yoga or art or something like that most of those individual pursuits outside of work are also going to be channeled through the market somehow yoga classes are commoditized so you need money for that so you've got to work for the money in order to afford all of these, like what we associate associate with, like an individual, say through like the yeah, it's the, the scarcity of capital, the artificial scarcity of capital. Yeah, individualism these days is very much like kind of like a samey substance that like is cultivated through like a social media profile to show, oh look at all the cool things I do, go on vacations and practice yoga and what have you. All of those things are channeled through the commodity market and further serve to reinforce capital's domination over us. You know, you can't go on these expensive vacations and do all of these things that are the mark of a fully formed individual without paying someone somewhere. It echoes back too to that notion of that narrow form of formulation of greed or self-interest that we applied to Bezos. Yeah. Really, I think that's a great illustration of kind sure. of the bullshit self-interest that capitalism tries to pride itself on. That's really yeah. irrational. It's completely irrational. Like, it doesn't seem like Bezos has <laughs> the time uh, so fucking great. to, like, do much else besides manage his companies. You know, he's swole, but that's because he's on roids. Like, Bezos is 
constrained in the same way by his need to be by his by because he's spooked by capitalist narrow greed i don't know it that also comes to mind is the idea like you'll often see these people saying oh yeah like musk that's like oh i work 96 hour weeks well like yeah like what you're a fuck, fucking dude, you've idiot. got like seven <laughs> you kids so like dumb. when do you spend time with them where is like, your where is your self-interest yeah. you're not you're not greedy enough dude you're yeah a fucking you're a slave to capital you're, you're a, like literal fucking loser <laughs> like yeah and his like his it's reflected in his taste too like musk's tastes are so fucking basic and pedestrian and reddit i don't yeah. know you know oh yeah total, like, totally totally he sucks. But these people, yeah, these motherfuckers, <laughs> people don't, they don't know how to enjoy. No, they don't. I mean, like, I genuinely don't think they do. Uh, that's the great, that's the great contradiction. Like, everything is an obligation to someone who works that much. You know, like, you don't get to hang out with, like, Kanye West because you have that much money. It's, like, also, like, a business opportunity or something right, like that. Yeah. You're always on the clock, basically, when you are yeah, in charge in of that much capital and you know, there's really, you could fuck off and retire, and I think that's what the smart people do. But yeah, it's yeah. like that Malachian sort of element of this is where kind of like the accelerationist notion of capital is its own kind of either sentient or non sentient form of artificial intelligence or yeah or whatever entity it is. Like it supersedes the individual, yeah, and only seeks its own reproduction. Definitely. And, and people it, like Musk and Bezos even feed in to accelerate that mm-hmm. further by continuing to day to sabotage their own self-interest by working or continuing to work. Yeah, it makes makes zero sense from the standpoint of of enjoyment. And I think and the, the flip yeah. point of that side, again, flipping from Strata to Marx, is that it doesn't have to be Bezos or Musk. It could be some other person like oh, it's yeah. not a it doesn't there's no individual quality yeah. that they possess capitalism doesn't give a fuck about the individual who they are. Yeah, it's a like, collect it's more collectivist than if they die presumably someone their else stock will go down but someone will replace them pretty quickly and you know yeah become the new musk or bezos if or there's a demand for something that some, something's going to step in to fill that yeah. vacuum like a you know multi-billion dollar company like amazon is not going to fold because it's founder died or retired it's going to find someone else yeah and that's where you know the logic of capital kind of like the inhumanism of it comes through is that they're fundamentally like mark fisher called humans the meat puppets of capital absolutely yeah in that regard everyone from jeff bezos the highest paid person in the world (laughs) to the lowest paid person in the world is a meat puppet of capital because they are all plugged into the machine somewhere and they're all fundamentally replaceable. If a poor person in a factory in the third world dies on the job, there will immediately be someone to replace them. I think the greedy, the narrow greed of capitalism kind of channels you into not being interested in a specific persons, but in, in, you know, specific parts of them, like their services that they provide to you or what have you like they fundamentally are you're interested in buying their skills their services you're interested in possessing part of them as a product or an object rather than engaging with them as a full formed individual so there's like this individualism is really prevented by the kind of like mediation of capital which like makes it hard for you to have a genuine conversation with a service employee who is part of their job is to present a happy face you know like or be interesting or 
charming or what have you to do effective labor. Yeah. Yeah. Marx's ultimate point in the German ideology, I think, is that like capital is an invisible but far more pressing constraint to like the realization of any kind of individual than the ideological traps of religion or humanism or what have you. And I think Stirner's error is that he boils down these historical transformations, the very realistic immediate needs of Martin Luther and his followers to, you know, reclaim land in Germany and dispense with the like material constraints put on them by like the Catholic Church and its indulgences. They didn't suddenly decide to abandon the Pope and the church and stuff like that. It was very real materialist material constraints like the intimate ties between the German state and the papacy that yeah. inspired them to rise up against. Well, what's interesting in that sense too is like the development of the printing press, the Gutenberg printing press and Gutenberg Bible that allows for Protestantism to flourish in the first place. Yeah, and I mean like... Outside of the... Because, at, and that's the thing too where like Catholicism had a monopoly on religion. Or Christianity, in a sense. Sure. Because I mean, they have the intellectual property, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. They have the private property <laughs> of God's word. Yeah, yeah. And then it's through the printing press that that shit gets democratized. Just, yeah, exactly. Sure. And I mean, you know, in around the same time in the different part of the world, Henry VIII doesn't suddenly decide that he's fucking sick of the Pope shit, decide to invent a new kind of Christianity. He is fundamentally trying to produce a male heir to the throne to prevent the kind of political turmoil that he was birthed in. As a means of doing that, he needs to break with the Catholic Church and its prohibition against divorce. So Anglicanism is not a natural expression of the religious geist moving through history. It is the fundamental restraint, like material production of very real material circumstances. Like, Henry VIII, when Thomas More was his like Lord Chancellor or whatever, was like a fierce defender of papacy and the Pope. And then suddenly he's not having a boy and he's worried that the line of succession is going to get fucked and there's going to be another century of war in England. So he cuts off More's head and breaks with the church. Yeah. You can't simply attribute these large historical transformations to changes in self-consciousness. And I think that's kind of where the seeds of Stirner and Marx's disagreement comes from. It is sort of both, though, too, right? Like, there is a dialectic as well, though, because of ideology becomes material force, or ideology ideology does take on material force. Absolutely, yeah. Because otherwise, like we discussed with Bezos, like, why else would Bezos... Sure. If, yeah. if capitalism, if bourgeois capitalism is this individualism that Marx paints it with or paints like Stirner's self-interest. Yeah. If those two are not in conflict, if they are congruent, then that thesis falls apart because Bezos continues to work like, yeah. Or Bill Gates or what have you. Right. Yeah. Stirner is kind of like similarly, I mean, moving on to, I guess their conceptions of like property and power. Stirner is kind of rejecting communism because for him all attempts to kind of like rationally legislate property have kind of produced like this what he uh, i think banano calls it a desolate sea of regulations it's basically like a nightmarish tangle of contradictions and sterner doesn't view that as being any different between capitalism and communism so he is not really 
you know, concerned with which one rules over him. He still wants to, like, he, he doesn't care about the idea of collective property, whether it's capitalist or communist. He doesn't want to participate in that kind of conception of society, I guess. Yeah, which I think is where, that's where the synthesis is going to come in whenever we take a really delve into the right to be greedy is yeah, they're going to synthesize those two strands of Marx and Stirner, although I would say, like, obviously probably leaning a bit further into Stirner. Yeah, sure. I don't know. I I, I think it's really an even tack. Like, it's, it's, it's hard to say they fall on one side or the other. I mean, I... It's interesting. I feel like you're coming at it from a more anarchisty perspective, and I'm definitely coming at it from the other side. Which is uh, that's actually perfect. I know that's it's good. perfect. Yes, yeah, so it's how you do dialectics. Yeah, <laughs> he he's basically arguing that in a communist society, you're not necessarily uh, doing your own thing. You're not participating in this egoist conception of labor that he has. You're relying on the communal labor of others to kind of give you a dole or a cut of that societal pie, which he views as a form of dependence and rejects categorically. So, I mean, I think that's kind of another huge cleavage between Stirner and Marx is that like Stirner has this view of socialism and communism, which is very influenced by the existing strains. And Marx is very much bucking these existing strains. Yeah. And I mean, maybe that's where the idealism label can be attached to Stirner in that sense, because Stirner's argument about property and freedom and so forth is about if someone gives you f- your freedom exactly it's then you don't real freedom have, like yeah, so he, freedom. he he compares it to, uh Urbano compares it to like no one grants me my freedom if my freedom is granted it makes me an emancipated or a liberated slave which i think is uncharitable but that's Bernano's rhetorical style like right yeah he's freedom has to be taken it has to be actively participated in through force of will you can't just Suddenly, the liberation, and I think this is not necessarily a rejection of Marxism either. It's like this emancipation that we all seek, this freedom that we all seek is not going to be given to us by like a Bernie Sanders. It's very clear at this point. Right. He's not going to suddenly roll into the White House and everything will change in an instant. Yeah, we're going to have to fight take that we're gonna have to, yeah. t- to take it yeah ourselves which is deeply terrifying we can't right? abdicate and responsibility think, for our own freedom to a third party exactly. to do it for us and i think that is perhaps one of the biggest so like that, that's one of the fundamental social relations of capitalism is relying on a third party to function for to do something for you totally but <laughs> i think that is also going back to marx a result of the division of labor like yeah we've been de-skilled so thoroughly that like right I can't fucking cook a Thanksgiving dinner and I had yeah. to like outsource it to right. a third party. You know, I, I rely on them for my kind of like food service, basically. And I think where Marx takes umbrage with Stirner's idea is that in communism, you're taking advantage of the tools that have been built by capitalism to do these things for yourself, to be able to, you know, hunt in the morning and fish in the afternoon and what have you. You are seizing what has been built for your own individual development, whatever form that might take. And the wealth of communist society, like the right to be greedy argues, is not the communal wealth that is distributed at the end of every week or something like that. It is the wealth of the individual, of the fully developed individual who does these things. Maybe if they don't, you know, produce their own food, they produce other things that people are desirous of but they do that out of their own volition you know and i mean it's not 
a matter of exchange at that point. It's a matter of actively applying yourself to one pursuit or another. So, I mean, I, I think that, you know, Stirner's kind of like conception that freedom is something that has to be seized is very, you know, similar to these, you know, psychoanalytic critiques of the, or not necessarily psychoanalytic, but like the, in that tradition of the existing socialist movement that come from Wilhelm Reich and D&G, Deleuze and Guattari. They, I think the fundamental points of their work is that freedom can't simply be given you you cannot simply be it's not likely that a world government is going to exist that gives you exactly these portions of food or what what have you that you need to survive it's that you will take back those skills that have been stripped from you and actively participate in them and be able to be a fully developed well-rounded individual without the constraint of material scarcity because we have developed all this capital which allows us to streamline the production process yeah we've been impoverished by capital we've been impoverished and alienated by capital alienated from our human essence as marx would say as sterner would reject but marx's and sterner's conception of this like human essence are very different yeah for marx our human essences are you know skills are participation in the social and individual interchange I think maybe I should specify, I think, so I think specifically alienation from the other. Alienation, yeah. Alienation from the other, to see them as opposition, to view it as a zero-sum, to view society or what have you as a zero-sum game. Well, that, but also alienation from oneself. Alienation from what made previous generations of humans human. Alienation from the interchange with the land, the active fulfillment of our everyday needs. We've been stripped of what makes us individual in that, or, or what makes us human in that humans used to be self-sustaining and socially interwoven, and both of those factors have been disentangled. So we are neither fully formed individuals nor por- part of a cohesive social body. Yeah. I mean, I just want to shy away, I think, from getting into human, human essence. Sure. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. I, I, I think the word is a, is a sticky... But I th- that's why I think specifically alienated from the from the our relation our social relations to the other yeah and wealth and production yeah is where it becomes most distinct because it obscures the social relation at the end of the day of in a sense like we're already like anarcho syndicalism is sort of where what we exist under in it right like in a in a kind a of way right like there's an are, there's yeah exactly yeah. it's like there's an anarchism of production but a privatization of capital and profit yeah but every one contributes in these quote-unquote voluntary syndicates yeah sure absolutely yeah like from I mean, a certain they, from a certain level you can say there's a voluntary it's a or obviously there's a coercement like we would say there there's a coercion sure. through this imposed scarcity if you're trying to take on the liberal notion of and i guess this entering is where... into this voluntarily but we it, like society's already syndicalized it's already everything is c- collectivized already we are yeah. already operating in a collectivized mode of production capitalism is a collectivized sure. mode of production but it robs us of that obscures that relation so spectacularly and fundamentally it's amazing that it's even able to persist in that sense because how the fuck do we not realize that every person is contributing every single person is contributing something if you're the janitor you know what i mean sure and the devaluation of those 
people that really, I mean, you can see this too in the lockdown, like the essential workers, right? Yeah. You know, I mean, that's where it's it's fucking, it's right there. It's right up there on fucking Main Street. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the pure uh, contradiction of it. The ideology stripped from the whole thing and laid bare. Yeah. Yeah, it absolutely, it shows the necessity and how we've impoverished ourselves through this fucking servitude to capital to the Malachian (laughs) nature of it. Yeah, and I think that that's where, you know, Marx gets so upset with Stirner is that he really doesn't view work as this process in which you can choose where you fit in the division of labor. You really, there's no freedom in the in the choice. You know, yeah. you, you said like voluntary, but, you know, and that, that might be Stirner's conception of it. You voluntary, voluntarily apply yourself in the way that you see best suited towards your I, your ego. But Marx says that's not what happens. It's you're channeled into these you know, yeah. positions, whether they be CEO or fry cook or what have you, you are uh, determined by your social environment and channeled into these very narrow, unfree positions. Yeah. And I think, so he kind of like critiques Stirner's conception of property as just a reification of bourgeois property. And I think that is what Marx fundamentally misunderstands about Stirner's. Stirner's The Unique in Its Property is defined around a individual, but the individual is not like alone. It's not just the individual. It's also their property and what they choose to engage with. So I think this is very, like Stirner's conception of property is not so easily pinned down. Yeah. Well, I think what gets confused here, and I don't recall where in the unique in its property, Stirner devotes a lot of time to property in the Marxian sense. I, um, he does not at all. Yeah. So, so like this it's is property. It's like the other property, like a almost like an identity in a sense. Like my property as so, I am, I am this, I am that. Yeah. Like Stirner doesn't really care about capitalist property. He he doesn't care if it property has no meaning uh, if it has alienation or exchange value as its purpose. It's only like a use value for Stirner. And in that sense, like I think that's his attitude towards property in the Marxian economic condition. But Bonanno goes as far as to say that his, the property in the unique in his property is not property in the possessive sense, but rather property in the descriptive sense. So it might as well be titled the unique and its characteristics. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So Stirner, like, here's here's what the direct quote, which is that many times Stirner has been wrongly considered a supporter of individual property, playing on a misunderstanding of what his concept of property was, that as we shall see was quite different. The unique one has a particular characteristic of its own. The unique one is not by itself self-sufficient. It needs something. It needs its property. Without its property, the unique one is nothing. It is an abstraction. But what is the property of the unique one? A house? A genuine possession? A purchase agreement? Or rather, what are these things? sanctification of reality concessions. He he remarks that like Stirner goes for 250 pages of his book without actually describing what the property in the title is. And he goes on to say that he cannot see a distinction, Bonanno says, between the unique and its property. So the unique is its property. Its properties are the unique. So he's not talking about these narrow things, a house, a car, capital, broadly speaking. He's talking about what defines the unique as an individual. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you know, without the property, the unique one is just a sanctification. The individual is just a, another thing to be made holy above 
all other things in reality. And I think this is where like Sterner's materialism kind of comes in, which is he's not, I, I think Sterner would reject the characterization of his viewpoint as individualism. I think where ism is applied to anything, Sterner is not on board. It, he view, he would view it as an ideological sanctification. Yeah. Yeah. When Bonanno is saying that like, no one grants me my property if anyone grants me my freedom, this makes me an emancipated slave. He's saying that freedom has to be conquered and taken. Your property has to be defined by yourself, your force of will. He's not saying go around stealing and hurting individual people because this is something that Sterner clarifies himself, which is that the existence of force finds a limit in the force of others, which is kind of like where Sterner really defines himself as an anarchist, which is that he defines his taking of property as based in a love of people, a universal love for people themselves, and that is the limit of his force. So he won't steal or hurt or, I don't know, rape and pillage. That's not Sterner's conception of force. His force comes from his kind of like general property, his individualism, his I. Oh, I know what I was going to say. It was in the sense of like, um, of the ego or the I becoming this reified abstraction. For Sterner, like that's the argument that they, I think, they make in the in the German ideology piece, right? Right. That it sort of there's a solipsism sure. present in Sterner's argument about mm-hmm. about that about yeah, it's like this sort of moralism of the I, right? Or or egoism, broadly speaking. Yeah, yeah, and I think like identify with Sterner, Sterner with any kind of like moral injunction is fundamentally misunderstanding what he's all about even with the what i said about like sterner's definition of the limit of force being his love of other people like that's for me it's it's very evocative of this like buddhist concept of meta which is buddhism doesn't have morals in the sense of western morality it's kind of an ethic defined above all by universal compassion it's not morality or shoulds that define what Sterner views as right or wrong. It's his love and compassion that, I don't know, separate his ethical framework from quote unquote morality, I guess. I don't know if it's even right to ascribe the word ethical framework to Sterner as, I don't know. But yeah, I think that Marx regards this like individualism as just like an expression of capitalist ideology that needs to be unmoored from like he kind of like makes a distinction between individualism and individuality. Yeah. Individualism becomes sanctification in itself. Like this is what Sterner is talking about when the individual needs his property. It needs to be defined as an individual, not as a person serving the cause of individualism. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that's the big, okay. That's a good distinction to make. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Okay. That clarifies. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, Sterner, his conception of property is not this narrow kind of Marxist view of property as capital. Yeah. yeah as like the productive capacity. Mm-hmm. No. Yeah. That's, or they're the different. Com- like commodities that result from that. Yeah. yeah. It's not political economy. Yeah. And that's where also like Marx in German ideology is critique is like, oh, you're not a very good political economist. Or sure. you realize blah. Sure. <laughs> And I think this is where the right to be greedy comes down on the side of Marx rather than Sterner on one occasion, which is that they critique his conception of communist property, which is that collective property, which is not taken, but given. They're arguing that the wealth of communist society is the property, the the man himself, the, the wealth of each individual as a person, like their renewed capabilities and their individuality. 
as unique beings. Like it's not a factory that produces bread and is doled out to people every week. It's it's people's renewed capability to do things for themselves, to be fully formed individuals. Like that is the wealth of communist society is the wealth of the individual. Right. Yeah, because again, like that's the only way that wealth can, like they argue the only way that wealth can be realized is social socially. And wealth yeah. is other is the other or is social to begin with the right to be greedy they have this like line which is that we conceive the realized social individual communist man as having for his property the whole of society the totality of his social life all of society is wealth for him which i think is pretty like i don't know it's easy to picture i feel like the not only the capital that capitalism has produced belongs to him but also his ability to choose what to do with that time belongs to him and his individual freedom and development is the development of everyone else's. Like his ability to define himself as like a master hunter or like designer of clothing or what have you is his value to the rest of society. I would point towards more something like, I would express it as this. It's sort of like the podcast that we're both voluntarily entering in out of our own desire for our own desire. Sure. And without you and I both, like we both, without the knowledge we've accrued, which is built by other, sure. uh, which is built socially, like the knowledge, yeah. all the products that we're using to create the podcast, the listeners without that social context, if it's just me talking without anyone to talk to or to listen, you're just like, what, a, then there's no, what, there's no wealth. Like there, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. Nothing is created or nothing of value is, is yeah, exactly. Value can only be expressed socially. Like it doesn't exist in this in a vacuum. It can't exist without the social. In the way that liberalism tries to abstract wealth as separate from humanity. Yeah, as as a pro- product of you know individuals competing freely on a market rather than cooperation, uh, the cooperation of an entire world in a production process. Not only that, but the history of labor too, and that's another what I think is one of the stronger arguments against or like you know the, capitalism, like you know the cult of like Steve Steve Jobs. I think is a perfect example. Like Steve Jobs invented the iPhone, such a marvel of technology. The iPhone is the result of DARPA research, which was publicly funded. It's the result of technologies. Yeah, I mean, there's millions, combined. there's like, millions of people that are responsible for those developments. And, and it's all, you know, justified as, you know, Steve Jobs took the in- yeah, like, risk. Exactly. He, you know, put, put up the money and uh, he had the brilliant idea to do this thing that no one else thought of. And that's why he is, you know, a job creator. And, and he like, deserves to yeah. expropriate the wealth of the social wealth of the whole history of humanity <laughs> largely right can be yeah can be uh ex- yeah expropriated because of those like the mathematicians like <laughs> the people that in, you know the sumerians that fucking invented the zero like you can't <laughs> yeah. do yeah, you can't yeah. do iphones without zero and guess <laughs> yeah, what yeah, if yeah. if fucking hammurabi could have had i you know <laughs> ip or whatever and you had to pay a licensing fee yeah to use the zero like that's that's where you see this fucking whole private property thing is just a fucking sham yeah you know? yeah totally yeah and i think private it's it's a disservice to sterner to you know redound his worldview as a reification of private property as the same time it's a disservice to marx's worldview to view 
communist property is just something that you get out of nowhere. Like it's it's a product of your own free volition. Under the zero-sum conditions of capitalism, like the pleasure for one person is the negative of the pleasure for another person. Like it means something that you can't have, but like under a system where the development of the individual is the precondition for the wealth of society, one person becoming more skilled or having access to, I don't know, some form of capital is a precondition for social wealth. Your ability to make this podcast is a precondition for other people to engage with it. Right. Engage with it out of their own self-interest, out of their own enjoyment. Yeah. Rather Helping, than like re- they can, re- they're realizing enjoyment through by ma- taking our, the pr- it as the, we- uh, the collective wealth of our, like they're taking you know, this as their property as right. Yeah. Yeah. Our, you know, fucking brilliance is their, <laughs> uh, is their profit. But that brilliance, if you want to be like, bold about right. That, was also produced socially through Absolutely. education, yeah. like, you know, and like all the and writers and thinkers, you know, and so. I would not be in the position I am to, you know, know all this stuff if I were working in a factory from the age of like 12 or something like that. Like I wouldn't have the time to have read all these books and to know all this shit. It is the result of a social process of wealth production and the just entire a history process, of humanity. I would say broadly. Yeah. yeah, it's a social process. Sure. The, all the teachers who taught me all the memes I saw that like <laughs> made me a communist, I don't know. It's a collective effort. I guess moving on, there's the matter, I guess, of organization. So this is like where, you know, Marx and Stirner, again, pretty clearly diverge. I think both of them would kind of like agree. And this is like one of For Ourselves points in Right to be Greedy, which is that they would both be critical of this modern anarchisty. I hate to use the term, which I think is a Theresaism, anarcho-liberal, <laughs> but the idea that there's an aversion to all forms of power and this like notion that power corrupts. And I think for Marx and Stirner, like that is just a recusal from the responsibility to accrue if not power in the capitalist sense of like alienated power being like state power or capital and i think this is like kind of one of the main areas where marxism diverges from like old school socialism and anarchism which came first which is that it's really a difference between counter hegemony on one hand and autonomy on the other hand so both of them i think are arguing that in order to produce an effect in the world you need some sense of power and i think that's like in line with more modern critiques of power from people like Deleuze or Foucault that like for ourselves has a, has a great quote, which is that like the greater the power the of the state and capital, the more powerless, the more impotent we are because their power is nothing other than our lost alienated power, the labor power we sell the capital and the political power we give up to our representatives. And then they argue that it's necessary to say this because of the legions of moralistic masochists and war- worshippers of impotence presently traipsing through the spectacle for whom we might have otherwise been mistaken. These self-castrated pacifists believe that not just power, but power also differentiating between capital with a power, capital P, or power with a capital P, which they define as like the state and capital's power versus capital with a lowercase p being self-power, the power of the individual. So I think that they're kind of finding common ground between Marx and Stirner, which is that in order to assert yourself against the overwhelming power of a state and of capital, you need to find ways to 
flex your own muscles. Does that make sense to you? Sort of. But, I mean, we have to find power in the sense of taking our taking our own, I guess, initiative. Yeah, absolutely. To participate in our own power. In that sense, yes. But I don't know. I'm still, I think, skeptical of power sure. and like... Yeah, no, I, I definitely think that there's something to be said for if you... You know, in, in our society, capital is very much power. Yeah. Like money, capital, they are what define power in the system. And you don't want to play too far into that game for fear of just becoming another aspect of capital. Yeah. I mean, I think overall, whether it be whether it be cap- power in a sense, whether it be from capital, Raleigh, um, capitalism... Ultimately, the enemy. I mean, as an anarchist, it is hierarchy it's, sure. because it's class. It's class division. Yeah. And I think for me, it's about everyone having a stake in the social. Yeah. Because if there's no consequences for actions, if you're not invested in the consequences of the outcome, then there, that's where class division arises or and i think there's there's a way to define power and counter hegemony that does not necessarily lend itself to hierarchy and this is where sterner and for ourselves are kind of taking the opposite position to marx although it's more of an opposite position to lenin and marx's successors which is that you don't want to establish an internal division of labor within any kind of like revolutionary organization and you want the organization to fundamentally remain an egoistic concern yeah for everybody yeah involved absolutely yeah. it's important to ensure that the same kind of representational politics don't emerge in revolutionary organizations as they exist in capitalist liberal democracy if you are delegating your political power to a party leader or something like that it is you're sacrificing your power to their power Right. Yeah. And fundamentally not really changing anything. Because to me, it makes, again, I mean, to fucking do, what is it, the Bakunin quote? It's like, I don't, it doesn't matter if it's the capitalist stick or, or the, the people people's stick, stick or sure. the state yeah. or communist, you know what I mean? Or the yeah, people's yeah. stick. At the end of the day, yeah, it's about hierarchy because without hierarchy, there's no power. And or I, I think, mean, there is, but not in the, necessarily in the, as co, you limit its ability, you limit the ability of coercive power. If power is a truck, flatten its tires so that it can't move, you know? It's kind of like my yeah. I, yeah, no, like, strategy the, that like I think Like their, I guess the the right to be greedy kind of like conceptualizes power as a hammer to be used against itself, I think at some point. Yeah. I, I don't know exactly Which why makes, they say that. But I mean, like, that kind of feel, fits within their kind of Hegelian argumentation. Yeah, I mean, so I think tying in very well with the idea that freedom cannot be handed down that Bonanno and Sterner raise as like a gift is that, you know, the Soviet project devolved as soon as the Soviets gave way to the centralized hierarchical Soviet bureaucracy that preceded it or uh, succeeded it. And I think that in a lot of ways, they were constrained by the historical forces that shaped their revolution. And ultimately, you can't really have a communist revolution in a peasant backwater. So, I mean, there has to be some level of, you know, like capitalist development that occurs between, you know, 1917 Soviet Russia and a hypothetical communist society. But I think that the problem came when the, you know, Soviets 
delegated their power or not necessarily delegated their power, but had their power stripped from them in favor of a representative democracy. And I think that's a point that for ourselves definitely hammer home, which is that the process of revolution has to be an active participation. And as soon as there is no longer active participation from everybody involved, you start to develop divisions of labor and the whole thing falls in on itself. I think that's very tied in with Wilhelm Reich, uh, his like conception of work democracy, which is basically his euphemism for workers' councils actively collaborating and participating in their own liberation and learning those skills of, if not skills of production, skills of leadership, you know, of exercising power. So for Stirner, in contrast to this socialist conception of the party, he advocates for a union of egoists, people who are fundamentally united by their shared self-interest to get together and participate in their own liberation. And that contrasts definitely with the, I guess, Marxian, even before 1917, the Social Democratic Party of Germany was very divided along like a division of labor with intellectual labor assigned to typically like higher class participants in the party. They developed a division of labor which allowed for certain concessions to be gained from capital, but fundamentally left the machinery untouched. I think Marx is critical of that view in that for him, the union of egoists is a very contingent structure which could like fall apart and doesn't necessarily lend itself to continued participation from all of its members. Right. As soon as, for him, one person's self-interest diverges from the groups, he's liable to quit. And I think that there is a, I don't know, a middle ground yeah. that can be found in between right. those two positions. There is a hypothetical union of egoists that includes the whole of, you know, the underclass or the whole of society even. Yeah. Our self-interest is in, you know, stopping the machinery of capitalism and saving the environment in uh, reclaiming time from the system of work. And the key issue is finding and articulating those desires that contrast with that injunction to be a part of the whole. Finding those self-interested, those those segments of self-interest that unite the class. Right. I think too here, like maybe in the, in the modern context, Stirner makes sort of more sense or seems it's more of like the insurrectionary model is more almost viable because of you don't feel like there's going to be this one, you know what I mean? There's not going to be this one revolutionary battle where capitalism is defeated on a battle. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's not those, that possibility has Seems largely been foreclosed, sure. foreclosed upon mm-hmm. by the progression of the consolidation of capital, the consolidation of, you know, to, of technology and weaponry and so forth on the state. So the playing field is now very uneven. Sure. Like it's going to take these sporadic, or it's going to take the form of these sporadic, asymmetrical sort of yeah. eruptions, yeah. rather than like one all one sort of Armageddon like battle of good and evil, where <laughs> yeah. you know all the 
At the same time, though, I think that the same limits of capitalism are there and that, you know, this kind of first world privilege that the United States and these like highly developed capitalist democracies are used to are going to evaporate over the course of the next century. Yeah. Which could at the same time signal the rise of a repressive authoritarian state or class consciousness. I mean, I I think that the contradictions are once again heightening the mechanisms of capital that were obscured by a period of a century of relative prosperity are now reasserting themselves in some of the most obvious and dramatic ways. yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I think that there's still a lot of education to be done. I think there's still a lot of battles to be fought on the ideological front and i think that sterner's conception definitely seems more viable in the short short term but who knows but yeah i I do kind of empathize or like sympathize with his view of i don't want to say cells (laughs) (laughs) operating on operating in minecraft (laughs) but the mechanisms of control do lend themselves to a decentralized i think networked rather than centralized yeah response exactly yeah it's like trying to fight yeah you don't want to fight the uh yeah it's like if you're fighting a seven foot tall giant you know you're probably not going to go toe to toe with them you're going to have to maybe do something like a slam yeah (laughs) but i mean also like a centralized party organization is more liable to be sabotaged by state interference or like it's easier to cut off the head of a centralized yeah that too highly labor divided organization than one in which each individual is acting of their own accord to their own skills it's easier to combat one of those than the other and i think that i think that there are though these hidden desires that can be tapped into to win people to the to, to over to like seeing their own egoistic interests that the modern forms of organization are not attuned to I guess you could say. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've been talking for a long time about the left or communism needs to take advantage of libidinal energy or something libidinal because, you know, the common perception is that capitalism is abundance and communism is scarcity. Yeah. And there's no joy under under communism. It's There's no excess. There, yeah, it's absolutely. all about um, this sort of pious austerity, austerity and, and self-sacrifice. Right, exactly. Yeah. And that's exactly where the egoist egoism comes into conflict with that is revolution shouldn't be a process of self-sacrifice. It should be an egoistic process for all involved. And I think this is where Marx pushes back on Sterner a little bit, which is that he considers these revolutions like revolutions that have happened in the past were very much uh, like the political and social act was in no way a contradiction to the egotistical egoistical act. For the participants of the revolutions of France and the revolutions of 1848, they were historical necessities. These people were, they saw their participation in the revolution as one and the same with their own self-interest, as an expression of their self-interest. So I guess I I think it's a matter of finding what those self-interests that unify people are today. Mm -hmm. I think a very self-evident and easy one is the lack of free time that exists under this current system or the fact that existing free time is conditioned by periods of non-work and poverty or periods of inactivity or periods where you have to engage with the consumptive apparatus of capitalism. It is easy to contrast the liberation of 
time with this period, this kind of scarcity of time that exists under capitalism. I think that presents itself as a very clear egoistic desire. I think most people would prefer to work less. And I think that's one such avenue that capitalism can't deliver on. It can give you non-work, but it comes in the form of pauperization, pauperism. That also ties into the gig economy as well, right? Because you have less, that's the thing about the gig economy is trying to give you more freedom to do your own, someone else does your grocery shopping, right? Yeah, I, I mean, the gig economy, I think, is an adaptation to the demands of radical movements in the 60s and 70s, which I think wanted this, you know, increased free time and increased, increased, you know, freedom to dispose of your time freely and capital seized on that desire and channeled it in a way that is like a uh, kind of perversion of the original desire. The hippies and the factory workers of the first world in these, in the sixties and seventies were agitating for more free time for time off the clock and they got it. It just wasn't in the form that they expected. And the existing gig economy is a reflection of adaptations capital has made to the real agitation of the workers' movement. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely an end run around um, all the gains of the labor movement. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. Off, again, offloading more costs onto the worker. Sure, yeah. There is the argument that the left... Externalizing that cost. Yeah, the left and the labor movement have simply agitated for the reforms that capital needed to adapt to a new period. And I think that... That's an interesting... It's a matter of contrasting the desires and self-interests of people in a way that doesn't feed back into capital. I would probably attribute it more to like the just movement of the evolution of capital and it's like necessity of squeezing out more... Or like even potentially, and this is getting perhaps into the weeds of it's like mm-hmm. there's nowhere for capital to find a return or those abilities. Like that's where this sort of glut of funds that, you know, go to a company like companies that lose a shitload of money. Yeah. Is because there's no like those avenues for profit to be realized are decreasing. Sure. Yeah. So and much. I mean like you know, when the... That's getting, I think that's getting outside the scope, perhaps, of, of this discussion. When the workers of the 60s and 70s agitated for more wages for less time on the job, Capital said, fuck you, and evacuated the, you know, global metropolis to the third world to develop those regions and left us holding the bag, essentially. So we ended up with that, you know, non-work at the expense of, you know, profit in this region of the world. Like capital adapted to demands that it couldn't, that were intractable to it by kind of like wiggling out of... Yeah, doing an end run around yeah, labor. From China to India to Africa. Like it, it, it's just, you know, working its way around. And I think that... Back, and now the effects are really becoming... Coming back home in yeah, the exactly. sense of the gig economy. And I mean, just in the sense of like, I don't know, it does kind of feel like America is collapsing. It feels like 
when I first moved to Austin, the drag was like a vibrant, you know, happening place where, you know, there were new shops and like now it's just desolate, vacant, you know, uh, totally abandoned. It, it does feel like capital has left us behind, but that doesn't necessarily have to mean a impoverished like social life. It can mean that we have more free time to, you know, develop ourselves and partake in the fruit that, you know, like the development of capital has created by, I mean, the, the real issue is just the appropriation of that, you know, wealth. So, yeah, I think that like, you know, egoism and like the union of egoists and the, you know, party apparatus of Marxism are kind of like in many ways irreconcilable, but I also think that there are avenues that are yeah. yet unexplored. Yeah. I don't think it, yeah, I don't think it's entirely foreclosed upon that a union of egoists could be like a party sort of like at least in a certain sense. I would almost make the argument, which I think is very spicy and probably <laughs> not like Sternerian per se that like, so for ourselves in the right to be greedy, they critique Leninist projects as having repressed egoism in favor of like developing capital. So like there's a quote that like the repression of egoism, contrary to the dictates of every one of the so-called communists from Lenin to Mao can never be the basis of communist society. The repressive conception of communism misses the whole point. It misses out on the validity of the egoist moment. So, I mean, like I would argue that like in a certain way, like does it fit the definition of egoism? Does the USSR fit that definition in the Sternarian sense? It does not because the project was mediated by a state, but in the other way, like the participation of the workers in the development of capital, they were fulfilling their economic self-interest. You know, the Soviet Union in 1917 was a feudal backwater, and by the mid-1950s, it had the highest per capita caloric consumption in the world. So you went from a country that was faced by, like, uh, famine in its early years to one in which, like, people's bellies on average were full. The problem comes in where, like, you know, what if you're someone in the USSR who doesn't want to work all the time? Yeah. Yeah. So the development of the productive forces, the intensive intensive development of that, which was a consolidate, I mean, sort of collapsing hundreds of years of primitive accumulation yeah, into that, other years. that other capitalist countries have been able to go through over centuries yeah. into a short time span. Yeah. And I think even more stark than your example would be just going from feudalism to putting people in space within that period. Of, I mean, that's I mean, just yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Un incredible. Yeah, there's no comparison, period. It's just historically unprecedented. And I think it for the average citizen of the Soviet Union, it was probably a, a miracle. I don't know. And I think that, you know, in the same way, you can kind of argue that like, that kind of like, ideology of 
anti-individualism was a necessary sacrifice that they had to pay for that kind of material comfort, I guess. A kind of sublimation of their own will to the will of the state bureaucracy, which was managing the development of capital. So I don't think it maps. I don't think you can map egoism so directly onto an anti-state movement. I think in some regards, capitalism was, it was a major improvement from the conditions of feudalism. Yeah. You know, it was liberating for the women who got to work and free themselves from like the patriarchal peasant household. It was liberating for, I don't know, but in the same way that like work is a sacrifice of liberation, like the peasants who had to struggle for their food at the same time worked considerably less than the full-time factory worker. Yeah, in an industrial setting, right? Yeah, and I think that now the egoist cause lends itself less towards the sacrifice of your time to work and the reclamation of that time for the free development of individuality. And I, I think there's something like really interesting to, to be said as well about so like the suppression of that, you know, egoism of the primitive hunter gatherer by like the egoism of commodity society kind of mirrors the bifurcation of the psyche into like a id and superego where, you know, the hunter gatherer was their psyche was entirely defined by id. It was ruled by the impulse to seek satisfaction of needs and with the development of commodity society you kind of have to sublimate that immediate desire to the long term like you have to sacrifice in the immediate short term for the development of capital does that make sense yeah it'd be a something like we're demand to not enjoy immediately and to it's like the marshmallow test you know yeah it's like the time preference yeah becomes abstracted or switch our shifts in mode of production from hunter-gatherer to industry. Yeah. In the development of industry creates a higher time preference. Yeah. So high, I forget what high time preference versus low time preference would be. But I think low time preference is more so like, I don't, I'm, I'm not so concerned about when I get my whatever. Yeah. Whatever the profit or whatever case, whatever I'm desiring. Yeah. And high time preference is like, it's more so... My immediate concern is getting, I'll take less money yeah. up front You'll work rather more. than wait. Yeah, sure. In order to have this like development of surplus that is like necessarily for necessary for civilization, let alone capital, you kind of have to sublimate that immediate desire. The marshmallow test, can you wait, can you delay your gratification for a future can you sublimate that desire for immediate reward, knowing that you'll get more in return? And I think today that's not necessarily true anymore. I think that that kind of mentality of scarcity still exists in a world that has largely surpassed material scarcity. I think I argue that the time preference thing is becoming like capital is shortening the cycle. Sure. Yeah. And yeah, it's like immediate profits are the, you know... That's what drives things rather than more long-term Yeah, yeah, it's kind of moving on momentum now and, you know, has to do so. I think that is, I think that process is accelerating. Yeah, definitely. And it seems highly unsustainable. Land has this quote that capitalism more than any other system is identified with desire and 
you know, that identification with desire means an increasingly short turnover of profit, which means planned obsolescence and the need for increased consumption to match the increased production. Yes. It's kind of creating its own pseudo needs, as like Guy Debord would say, to make up for the needs that are already filled. The yeah. genuine needs of food, shelter, water that are all provided for, th- th- those are all easily fulfillable under present conditions have to be replaced by these external desires. And the only external desires capitalism can manifest are commodities. It can't meet this desire for community or for more free time. It is forced to sublimate those because it's not part of the logic of capital. Most glaring were this seems to be the case is like in the context of climate change, right? Yeah. That's maybe the most stark example of where this time preference thing, this fool, like this contradiction within capital, like destroying, you know, potentially destroying its ability to like... To reproduce itself. To reproduce itself. Yeah. Or reproduce itself without massive death and repression. Yeah. And I mean, it, it is definitely nearing those limits because as we mentioned earlier with the like flight of capital from the first world to China, to India, to Africa, it has to, it, it is reaching its natural limits. Like there's nowhere else for it to go. It, once capital, like workers in China are achieving like the living standards and their birth rates are declining in ways that you would have seen in the West earlier in the century, or last century rather, eventually capital is going to hit the wall of running out of resources to exploit and people to exploit and development that needs to be done. And will, you know, the continuation of it will start to impose these natural limits. Yeah. And I mean, even in the, in the imperial core, this is becoming very, like it's, I think maybe that's something interesting that's a development. Yeah is it's hitting those limits here now finally like the economic sort of colonization shit is now we're being sort of recolonized by capital well i mean like at the the same time our our living standards are declining uh, in a way that is i think i mean that's what i'm saying though yeah it's sort of recolonizing the imperial core and turning it into it's refutilizing in a sense. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, I don't think it's de- I don't think there's any more development happening in the imperial core. I don't think there's anywhere for you know, technology to improve. Yeah, I I don't think there is any more development to be done, you know, in the first world. I think all the development that there is still room for exists in the third world and the first cannot any longer kind of like keep up those the artifice of plenitude. I feel like with coronavirus, we experienced certain scarcities for the first time in a long time, like with toilet paper running right. out at the start of the crisis. You know, we are, like capital is reaching limits and starting to head back in the direction of an actually existing scarcity, which is a terrifying concept because the scarcity is no longer of commodities and TVs and bullshit. It's, it's of very real human needs like food and water imposed by climate change. We've gotten on a tangent for sure. (laughs) Yeah, I think that that kind of is the crux of the egoist task is demonstrating that there there is another way. There is a world in which we can work less and develop as free individuals outside of the realm of capital. And I think that 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 kind of does demand a level of organization that is 
if not sustaining a division of labor, is more concrete than the union of egoists. The very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is